as has already been mentioned this evening, we each, I know, feel blessed and honored to be able to come back together to assemble a second time on the Lord's Day, even as we are at this moment, and to appreciate the, the lovely desire to offer to God the worship that we genuinely feel that He deserves and that certainly He is honored to receive when it's offered according to His will. The songs that we've sung have already encouraged us so, stand up, stand up for Jesus. The appreciation of the beautiful robes of white, about which we sang a moment ago. All of that brings me in some way to invite your attention to a lesson I've entitled, Divinity of Jesus. And this opening slide, which will serve as a very brief introduction, is a very direct one, however. There's really no subject more central, more crucial, more needful than the proper appreciation of and understanding of the nature of our Savior. It is for that reason that you well know that there are some religious groups that do not look upon the nature of Christ the way that you and I do. In other words, there are religious groups that will say Jesus was a fantastic teacher. They might even go so far as to admit that He is, was a remarkable prophet. But they say He was not the Son of God. In fact, you well know the Muslim religion does not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, even the Jehovah's Witnesses, as among the matters that they believe, they too have a very disturbing view in some ways of the nature of Christ. For reasons such as that tonight, why don't we allow the Word of God to do the speaking and let's give some appreciation. Who really was Jesus? Was He God in the flesh? If so, how dearly we need to know that. And certainly how strong a part of our appreciation of what He did in the church that certainly ought to mean. So too it is, as you close that slide with me, let's go ahead and give a bit of a definition of deity. That word deity is a bit of an unusual word in some ways, but it simply means that which is of divine character. In other words, that which is God. With that said... Let's begin to look then at several biblical passages, all of which will lead us to one unanimous conclusion about the nature of Christ, namely His divinity. I've divided the lesson into several points, and we will pause to discuss briefly in each point, but I think the idea will be fairly clear enough. First thing perhaps to notice is, what about the birth of this one we call Jesus? Did He enter this world by a rather natural process, perhaps not unlike the way you and I all entered it? Or was there something fantastically unique and very unusual to say the least? You know that the gospel accounts, in fact, bring us to appreciate the truth on this matter, but let's at least note in passing one Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, 850 years prior to the birth of Christ, there the prophet Isaiah was told, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Please note the language. A woman who had never known a man was said that she was going to conceive and bring forth a son. Now, from the natural perspective of things, how could it be that a woman who had never known a man could in fact become pregnant and deliver a child? Now, that passage in Isaiah 7 isn't the only Old Testament passage, though I would be quick to admit it's the one quoted in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, in the very first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, we find that as that chapter rolls onward, you well remember that Mary was found to be pregnant 
though she wasn't yet, though betrothed to Joseph, the marriage hadn't been finished, if you please. It wasn't completed. And Joseph at first had some misgivings. How can this be? The woman whom I'm about to marry is pregnant? It wasn't by me. And you well remember that Joseph at first was going to put her away privately. There was enough consideration that he wasn't interested to be married to her at this point. She apparently, as far as he knew, had not been faithful to him. And yet, you and I remember that an angelic visitor from heaven appeared to Joseph, calming his concerns and calming his fears, and said, What is in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Joseph at once proceeded to do that. And in the verses that follow, we have this beautiful anthem, Call Him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, the very name Emmanuel, that again was given to this child born to to Mary. Emmanuel means God with us. It was there affirmed, He's God. He's divinity. He has all the characteristics of deity. As you'll notice on that slide, I did invite you to consider another Old Testament passage that is so very telling. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31. In that chapter, we encounter a passage, verse 22, that speaks in the following fashion. It was again there highlighted to the prophet Jeremiah that there was going to be a moment and a time when a woman would compass a man. That word compass means to go around. She would accomplish that which normally would require the services of a man, and yet she would go around a man. You and I know well that was a prophecy down the stream of time to point to the fact that Mary would go around a man to become pregnant. And of course, it was the Holy Spirit coming upon her. How fantastic to consider that our first understanding then takes us to Luke chapter 1. In the opening chapter of the book of Luke, we have an angelic visitor appearing to Mary. Now, she hadn't yet given birth to the child, but oh, how amazing were the words that were uttered to her. I'd like to read just a few of those verses from Luke chapter 1. Beginning in verse number 31, the angel to Mary said, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, And thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Even Mary understood, I've never been with a man to this point. How are these things going to to come to fruition? And the next verse says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the high shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called, hear it, the Son of God. Mary was told that that which would be delivered of her would be the Son of God. Deity. Divinity. Let's look to a second consideration. After this one, what else might be said even following the birth of Jesus? I've asked you to notice His baptism. 
We have two rather careful accounts given of his baptism in the New Testament. One of them in the third chapter of the gospel according to Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew. And the other, as you can see on that slide, in the third chapter of Luke. As you give some thought to them, I've invited you to note these details. First, nobody made Jesus be baptized in the sense of somebody on earth. He, of His own voluntary will, came to the Jordan River and found John. John didn't go coerce him. He didn't go force him or make him. It was the Lord's decision. Jesus came to the Jordan where John was baptizing. And this interesting thing took place. At first, John was very reluctant, very hesitant. He said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John, you see, understood who Jesus was. He had already been told, there is coming another one, and even John admitted it, there's coming one after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. John had said that. Now, the fact that the Lord had come, Jesus had come, and desired to be baptized of John, John at first again was rather hesitant. I think I need to be baptized of you rather than the other way around. And yet, Jesus made this statement, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You might take note with me that the Lord wasn't being baptized in order to receive remission of sins. He didn't have any sins to be forgiven. He didn't have any sins to be remitted. He rather said it this way, It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to fulfill what's right. Doesn't that cast a great spotlight on the nature and character of baptism? If Jesus said it's the right thing to do, then who among the human family over the course of years has reached the point and said, you don't need to be baptized? I would really hate to think I had to answer God in judgment when even His Son, who's going to be sitting there in front of me, and He was baptized, and it's the right thing to do to be, and who am I then to argue it's not? And yet, in light of those things, look at what else I've invited you to consider on that slide. What else took place at that baptism? We remember it well. God the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that fantastic? So the Father spoke. Jesus here in the flesh was the one being baptized. And the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, as we're told again in the book of John. All that reminds us that Jesus was one who was identified by what the God of heaven had said. This is my beloved Son. The Father admitted it. He confessed it. And apparently in such tremendous character, He made note to all who were there present, This is my Son. Doesn't that highlight His divinity? He is deity. In addition to His baptism and His birth, what else might we know? Point number three. His reception of worship. I offer this for your consideration for the following reason. We are told in the Word of God that only God is to be worshipped. You can probably as quickly raise to the passages as can I. Jesus Himself said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Hear Him with me. Him only shalt thou serve. He used the word only. In other words, there's an exclusiveness related to the one that is to be worshipped. No other being 
of any form, fashion, or character is to receive worship. At this point, perhaps it's worthy of note that there is a host that occupies the heavenly realm. There are angels of various orders. There are others that are described in the book of Revelation. And no doubt, it's a fantastic thing to consider. Question, are any of those others worthy of worship? Isn't that a good question? What about Gabriel? This one who has appeared on the pages of the Word of God a few times in very special occasions, he appears to be a rather notable angel. Was there ever a time it would be fitting to worship him? I would offer the following passages for your consideration. In Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, you might recall that there, John, the one to whom the revelation had been delivered, he was overwhelmed by what he saw. More than once in that book, he'd been told, John, what you see, write it in a book. Revelation 1.11. He truly had been overwhelmed. The degree of that overwhelmed character led him to do this. When the book was about to reach its conclusion, in light of seeing that tree of life and the remarkable features surrounding what would be the heavenly realm, John fell on his face to worship the angel. Do you remember what the angel said? Get up, John. I'm a man like you are. I am not to be worshipped. Now, I made that statement, borrowing apart from the assertion of Acts, 20, Acts chapter 10. That angel said, I am not to be worshipped. I am not becoming of it. It is not suitable for me. I am not the object of worship. Now, if it's, poss- if it's not possible to worship an angel, then you and I recognize no human of any form or character is to be worshipped. But let's go back and note the passages. Have you ever reflected on the number of times that Jesus received worship? How many times that the text expressly says that somebody came and fell before Him and worshipped Him? I've listed you a host of passages. Matthew 8, verse 2. Matthew 9, verse 18. Matthew 14, verse 33. Matthew 15, verse 25. Matthew 20, verse 20. Matthew 28, verse number 9. All of those are only drawn from the gospel according to Matthew. All of those times the text says he explicitly received worship and not one time did he ever correct the person. Not one time did he ever say, I'm not God and thus I am not worthy of your worship. Not one time. The fact that he received worship leads me to invite your consideration to this. We know the Lord never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeding of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. If he received worship when it was not proper, then he was guilty of endorsing sin, he was guilty of encouraging sin, and he never did that. That leads us to conclude Jesus properly received worship. He is divinity. He was deity. He is the Son of God. Point number four. After looking at these three, could I invite your attention to His teaching? What were some of the things that He shared with people during the course of His public ministry? I've invited you to make a brief consideration of these. 
Jesus taught that He was divinity. More than once, He claimed it. In John 4, verses 25 and 26, you recall the woman at the well. His disciples had gone to buy some food to to get something to eat. The Lord was there, and He started a conversation with this Samaritan woman. During the course of that conversation, Jesus said, I'm the Messiah. I am the one that's divine. Now let's pause and note this. If He wasn't divine, He lied to her. And you and I know, again, the Bible says He never lied. He never sinned. Doesn't that lead us to conclude, with our appreciation of conviction in the truthfulness of the Bible, He was telling her the truth. He was divine. May I say that He also confessed it in John 9, 34. There was a man there who had been born blind, and during the course of the conversation and the healing of that man, Jesus again affirmed that He was the Messiah. One more time, He was telling the truth, and therefore the statement is true. These things lead me to conclude that one by highlighting this as one of His characteristics. Given that He is divine, then doesn't it follow He's eternal? He has always been. He will always be. And so that harmonizes so powerfully with the statement He made near the close of John chapter 8. Wasn't it true at that time that He powerfully said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham had lived 2,000 years previous to that discussion in John chapter 8. And you and I know that no human being on earth can live to the age of 2,000 years. And yet, the Lord there said, I was existent before Abraham. We seemingly then easily see that His divinity leads us to see no problem with that statement. Perhaps fantastically, we close that particular point with this observation. So far, we've looked at four matters that testify to the divinity of Christ. Let's look at a fifth one. What else in the Word of God might lead us to consider with seriousness the issue of the Lord's divinity? Consider with me for a moment His resurrection. I suspect this is one you had already raced to in your mind. But it goes without saying that since the Bible does assert it and highlight it, we too ought to give it its proper and rightful place. Would you note with me the wording of Romans 1, verse 4? In the very beginning of the Roman letter, Paul addressed that congregation and said that the resurrection occupies a rather powerful place. I would like to invite you to read it, or to listen as I place it before your hearing. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, "...and declared to be the Son of God." Paul is speaking about Jesus and says, There is a means by which He was declared to be the Son of God. Let's read on. With power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now the language is very telling and very clear, isn't it? In fact, couldn't it be described as directly as this? We know that death is a part of the human existence here upon earth. If the Lord delays His coming... If things continue on, we know we're all going to die. It isn't a unique thing to die. There's a lot of different ways one can die. It might well be of natural causes in old age. It might be an automobile accident. It might be some other afflicting disease. Fact is, death is not at all uncommon. 
what is uncommon at this point is resurrection. You and I drive along the roadways and we see cemeteries, a lot of them. And we see tombstones and we see writing on it and we see various statements about love and endearment concerning those who've passed on. But the fact is the body's still there. Maybe long since decayed in some way, but it's still there. And yet, in this instance, Paul made a dramatic statement. Jesus was proven to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That tomb was found empty. Matthew 28, 6 reminds us when the angelic visitors were there and the women had come, they were quick to say to those women, He's not here. He's risen. The power and sweetness of that reminds us that He was the Son of God. That text said He was shown to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. You and I thus can have the greatest of confidence and the greatest of assurance that here's another evidence of proof that He was divinity. He rose. The degree of that arising, of course, provides you and me the guarantee and hope that we too one day will rise And oh, what a blessed time it shall be when all that are in the grave shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, but they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. To give thought to the the resurrection in that way, did you notice the message that Peter and the others on Pentecost preached? The very first day of gospel preaching in essence. In verses 14 and following, Peter highlighted, He did die. He was buried, but he emphasized the grave wasn't able to hold him. He came forth. And that instilled those Jews present that day with recognition. We put to death the Son of God. And by the time we reach verse 37, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They understood that of which they were guilty. And they pleaded with Peter, What can we do about this? He answered in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. To reflect for a moment on the Lord's resurrection, you'll notice that many other verses might be listed in our discussion of that point. I might call to your attention John chapter 20, verses 26 and following. You remember it well. Thomas is the man under discussion. Thomas, you see was a bit reluctant to accept the Lord's resurrection. You may recall that eight days earlier when the apostles were gathered and Jesus met with them, the risen Jesus, they were amazed. Over the course of that week, they said, Thomas, we saw Him. He met with us. He's real. Thomas said, unless I put my fingers in His nail prints and into His side, I'll not believe. The next Sunday, Jesus appeared and said, Thomas, put your hand there. I am the risen Lord. Thomas responded by saying, My Lord and my God. He claimed Jesus was God. The Lord never corrected him. For you and I know he spoke the truth. Look at number six. A host of passages otherwise positioned in the New Testament can certainly be worthy of our consideration as they reaffirm the divinity of Jesus. First of all, in John chapter 1, 
you and I know that only God can create. Now, it might be wise for us, at least briefly, to give some thought to the word create. Now, you and I know that humanity often can be skilled and in rather inventive and creative. We can take something that already exists and repurpose it and redesign it and make something new out of it. In fact, those that do that might well get a patent from the U.S. government that they own the particular that they have invented or designed. Pause with me to note, we aren't talking about that kind of creation. When the Bible refers to creation, it means to create out of nothing, to bring into being what was not there in any form. And so, when you and I read in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, about things on six consecutive days coming into being, such as light, the firmament, the particulars of day three in which plant life arose, the seas were gathered together, and certainly the dry land appeared. Day four, the sun, moon, and other celestial objects. Day five, life in the oceans and in the atmosphere above us. And then day six, land-dwelling creatures like dogs and cats and all kinds of creatures like that. But not only that, mankind came along that day. And when you and I reflect on God's creation of these things, it's not that He made them out of something that was of the same basic structure and character. It was something very different. In Genesis 2-7, it does say this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Question, who can take a wad of mud or dirt and turn it into a human being? The finest scientists that have ever lived cannot even dream of how that can happen. And yet, the God of heaven did it and had no trouble doing it. It's at this point I should then say, isn't it amazing? The Word of God says Jesus was the one who brought about all that creation. God the Father gave the orders, but the Son is the one that carried it out. He's the one that executed it. We read that in Colossians 1, verses 15 and following. No wonder in that connection, in that light, perhaps another verse. In 1 John 5, verse 20, the closing near the close of that little, little five-chapter book, John in writing said, speaking of Jesus, this is the true God. John said he's God. Now those who would wish to disagree will have to take that up with not only John, but with the God of heaven and the Holy Spirit who equipped him to say that. John said he's God. Nextly, could I invite you to notice in Hebrews 1 verse 8, a rather amazing set of proofs. There, the Hebrew writer quotes from the Old Testament and says, At no time did God speak to any angel and say, This is my Son. But He did say that to Jesus. We noted it earlier, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And later on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was affirmed in Matthew 17, 5, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. The God of heaven testified that Jesus is deity that He is divine. And so as we perhaps make one final observation, look at Philippians 2 verse 6. Isn't it rather phenomenal how direct the point is made in that passage? 
Beginning in verse 5, the text says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God. There we have it. Jesus is in the form of God. He has all the rights, all the privileges, and all the features appertaining to deity because He is divine. We do a serious injustice to the nature of Christ if we question this. He is the Son of God. As we close that sixth point, how strongly were some of the words of the New Testament? For instance, in John 1, 29, John the Baptist again highlighted the fact, Behold, speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John said he's the Lamb of God. John said only he can take away the sin of the world. It is with that in mind we can close point number six and look at our seventh and final point of the night. What about the characteristic of various Old Testament passages? Now maybe you think that it could have been better to have selected this point and used it earlier in the lesson. But tonight, Brother Lester read from Zechariah 13. I will invite your attention primarily to that passage because the directness of it, the strength of it, and the clear message of it is not to be denied. In Zechariah 13, that passage again reads, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Let's pause for a moment. We have here the prophet making reference to the shepherd. Let's make quick observation. He was not talking about a common, ordinary shepherd that was tending sheep in the day that he lived. At some time in the days of Zechariah. Let's read on. And against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pause for a moment. The God of heaven, in speaking, said, There is somebody that is my fellow. Now today, when you and I make reference to someone as our fellow... We refer to someone who is our equal, a colleague, someone who experiences that which we do and in fact often endures it in the same way and is our fellow. And therefore, maybe there's a fellow employee. Maybe there's a fellow person on the local parent-teachers association. Maybe there is a fellow attached to a particular athletic team. Point is, we're well acquainted with the idea of a fellow. The verse again says, "...against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts." Let's pause again. The Lord of hosts said this, "...there is somebody that's a fellow of mine," meaning that this person has all the attributes, all the qualities, all of that which would be considerate of me as God. He's my fellow. He's my equal. Let's read on. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Don't you love this? You've already raised in your mind where this is going. This isn't the only place we find this passage. As we turn the page into the New Testament, we find somebody quoting this and applying it in a very directed way to someone, and we each know who it is. You remember the scene. Jesus, you see, had left the temple complex and was in fact moving to that area we call the Mount of Olives. And He had a very strenuous night. He prayed three times. 
Peter, James, and John were asleep. They couldn't stay awake even an hour with Him. We notice that when the Lord completed those prayers, that Judas came with a band of soldiers. He came bringing those ready to turn Him over by way of arrest. It was in that regard this passage was quoted. Because that night when they arrested the Master, the, the disciples scattered. They didn't want to be around. They thought they too, no doubt, might be arrested and perhaps even put to death. They scattered. This passage in Zechariah 13 was quoted and applied to Jesus. He is the fellow of God. He is the one that has all qualities and attributes equal with God. He is God's fellow. That's a powerful argument and a powerful consideration. This passage was applied and applied to Jesus. And in fact, in that observation, as the text closes, you will remember the greatness of what came about that night. The Lord was arrested. He was taken to Annas. He was later taken to Caiaphas. The next morning, they nailed Him to a cross. The shepherd had been smitten. The one who was the fellow of God. In our study of those matters tonight, it brings me to perhaps conclude our lesson this way. We set out on a course, a journey, to at least give some thought to what does the Word of God say about the divinity of Christ? Because after all, throughout the ages, some have questioned it. Like I said earlier, perhaps claiming Him a great man, perhaps claiming Him a marvelous prophet, but being quick to say He was not the Son of God. And in light of all of these points, those individuals are not only very mistaken, they are guilty of a grievous sin. Because in Acts 4.12 it says, "...neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. His name, the name of Christ, the name of Jesus, the fellow of God. He's the one that died on the cross." And for all these other things we've studied, we have the strongest of appreciation that He is divine. It was God that died on that cross for you and me. It wasn't just a man. It wasn't even a great man. It was the Son of God. Oh, how much God loved you and me to give of Himself to die for our sins. Tonight in this assembly, there could be somebody that might wish to make a rededication to a life of faithfulness. Maybe, though once faithful, you are not at the moment. You've begun to believe things and act in ways that are not consistent with the Word of God. It might not be the subject we've considered tonight, but it's a some other matter. And we'd be delighted upon observation, you see, of your repentance and confession, God will look forward to forgiving you. But you need to make that decision. And tonight, if we could be of help to you, perhaps even offering prayers of strength, Maybe there's no particular sin that comes to your mind, but you just know you're facing a mighty challenge in the days ahead. And you would very much like the prayers of encouragement and fortitude on the part of brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd be delighted to make that prayer on your behalf. This very point, a song of encouragement has been selected, and we offer this as a convenient time and invite one or more to come while together we stand and while we sing.